All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that's introspective. We're back, kids, doing crimes for your love. Look, we bought you a Cadillac. Aw, uh, yeah, but what is it worth? What, 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 what is it worth? Oh man, well, you know what would happen if the banks or the IRS saw me with that Cadillac? Oh man, financial troubles. Uh, today, <laughs> we're talking about uh, the 2002 Steven Spielberg film, Catch Me If You Can, based on the real-life adventure, uh, or misadventures, of Frank Abagnale Jr., a renowned con artist, and uh, we are going to be breaking down the story, the real story, the characters, the themes, all the stuff about it. If you don't know anything about it, you should know that it was based on the screenplay by Jeff Nathanson, and it's starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, Natalie Bay, Amy Adamson's in this B. What? Martin Sheen? Wow! Look at all these people! That's crazy! So many people! Ooh, bang, boom, skibbity bow! Uh, so, uh. This is great. <laughs> you don't even need me for this show. <laughs> Uh, this episode was actually pr- proposed by one of our fans, uh, Lisa McNabb, and so we thought we would let her pitch it. So take it away, Lisa. Hi, this is Lisa. So thank you. First of all, thank you guys so much for choosing the movie. Um, let's hope I do it some type of justice. Well, it's set in the 1963s, starring the forever young Leonardo DiCaprio as teenager Frank whose family runs into some money problems and whose mom is having an affair. So in a very typical teenage move, he decides he's going to con his way through life. He at points is a teacher, an airline pilot, a doctor. He does so well that the FBI gets um, comes to his attention. And in comes Tom Hanks' character, Carl, and the beginning of what I like to describe as a decade-long adversarial friendship. Death, heartbreak, jail, this friendship goes through the ringer, and it all ends with them overcoming the differences and working together to catch more bad guys. This is the long-distance buddy cop movie that you didn't know that you needed but got anyway in a very comedic, emotional movie. That is what I have to say about the movie. Hopefully, I did it justice, and hopefully, you both enjoyed it as well. It's probably one of my favorite, favorite Leonardo DiCaprio movies ever. 
Thank you. That was great. I think uh, I think she nailed it. Uh, she really put into perspective like what the movie's about, like what the the good cat and mouse game of Catch Me If You Can, and also that sweet sweet bromance between Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Ooh, baby! So, uh, sounds like a good old fashioned uh, caper. It sounds what's the word? It sounds like um. Uh, a, a, a romp that's the word a good old-fashioned yeah. romp through through crimes romp, <laughs> romp crimes steven spielberg's yeah. romp crimes i think i hear that that was the original name of the movie oh man romp crimes and i i was really looking forward to romp crimes too um i stole from you that one was going to be my favorite uh, and like, yeah, like uh, they were going to cross it over at one point with the Russell Crowe uh, prison drama Romper Stomper. And Romper Stomper was going to be like their uh, their Thanos who comes in and stomps all over their their romp crimes. Right. Of course. Um, too bad it, it never came to fruition. You know, you know how hard it is to 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 make these uh, trilogies. It's just, you know, if the first one is too good then it becomes a double-edged sword are you just doing the same thing over again or like is it too different so they're like let's not risk it let's let it become its own thing uh and it stayed as just the single (laughs) edition (laughs) catch me if you can Uh, um but yeah uh this movie essentially took about 20 years to get off the off the ground um it uh, is based on the autobiography, which is as told by Frank, uh, about 80% uh, true with a little bit of embellishment here and there, but he won't really go into what's real and what's not. It's all, it's as real as you want it to be, baby. Uh, so uh, then he was trying to option the rights to his book almost immediately after he wrote it. And then it went through a series of uh, development hell, as people would say. And finally, finally, Steven Spielberg rescued it from the coals and polished it off and made this piece of diamonds. Um, I'm sure that that's how that uh, that saying goes. Yeah, um, I, I know that one. And made, yeah. yep, brushed it off and made this piece of diamonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lex, you had seen this before, right? Yes. Uh, not though for a very long time. This movie came out two thousand two, so I think the most recently I would have seen it is two thousand two, two thousand three. So it's been a long time, and I had I didn't really remember anything in the movie except what was in the trailers. Um, so I knew I, I vaguely remembered the the tone of the movie. I I remembered what the DiCaprio Hanks relationship was going to be. I remembered that his relationship with his dad was a big deal. And I remembered um, what a couple of the, the romp crimes were. Um, but really, the, the, the content, the full picture of the movie was sort of a blur to me. Lost to my past, like tears in the rain. But then I got a uh. cup for the tears, and now I'm drinking the tears back up. Mm. Yeah, Roy, Roy Batty didn't think of that shit. <laughs> uh, well, that's why he's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was my first time seeing it. Um, my first real uh, foray into the character personality that is Frank Abagnale. Um, I guess he, like since 
he was caught and since he had started working with the FBI, he's been kind of a like personality in the, in the mainstream. Like he had been uh, interviewed by um, uh, Letterman. He had been on that, the actual show that is uh, featured in the beginning of the movie, which is to tell the truth. Um, he had done a bunch of like 60 minute interviews. Like this guy is all over the place. Um, and he like, had been essentially working with the same banks that he defrauded and, and uh, to help get their, uh, their security up, up to date. And he uh, is also helping other people to not get defrauded. So like, you know, this guy has, has a long illustrious life and career. So um, yeah. Do you, what did you think of it? I guess now compared to when you first seen it or when, what did you think of it the first time you saw it? Uh, first time, honestly, I couldn't couldn't tell you. I do not remember this time, though. I I mean, look, it's uh, Steven Spielberg is sort of one of our most lauded and beloved filmmakers for a reason. Um, I think as far as content, like with any movie, your mileage may vary. But I think as far as the way he chooses to tell the story, uh, one, it's got a ton of personality. I think it moves along uh, really efficiently, has a couple of great scenes, some wonderful performances. Um, I think Christopher Walken absolutely earned his uh, Best Supporting Actor nomination for this movie. I think he's truly, truly lovely in it. It might actually be one of my favorite Walken performances. Um, but what really struck me about it this time through, and it's stuff that I, I really wouldn't have been able to key into watching this movie when I was, you know, 12 years old or however old I was, um, was a lot more to do with theme and the way Spielberg decided to approach telling the story through theme and what those themes mean, both for the story itself, but also for Spielberg as an artist, which is something that I definitely want to talk about a little bit more later in this discussion once we get past the spoiler wall. But I enjoyed it a lot, um, uh, a lot. I, I wasn't surprised because, again, Spielberg knows how to make movies. Um, but to see him kind of play in this mode, a mode that he really helped shape. There's a thing we were trying. I watched it last night and was having a conversation after the fact about this this specific tone that a lot of movies in the nineties and very early two thousands had. And I think it's something that Spielberg's work in particular sort of led to uh, uh, it being absorbed by the culture more broadly. And it feels a little bit like, um, yeah, it's a period piece. Uh, obviously the movie set in the sixties. So in, in one way, yes, it's, it's designed to take you back to a different era. But for me, it really watching the movie again last night really did, for a, a couple hours, feel like it took me back to an era of filmmaking that, for better or worse, is now you know some ten years gone. Um, and it was fun. And and right now the world is terrifying and and not awesome. And so to have that couple hours experience where I felt like, oh, like Spielberg at his best can do that, right? Like his movies feel very whimsical, very fantastical much of the time and they can transport you in that way. They can sort of take you away from all your troubles and, and whatnot. And so that's the experience that I, I had with it last night um, with, with obviously a little bit more uh, nuance that we'll get into, but Tari, you having never seen it, what was your experience as a, as a first timer with this movie? 
Um, I found that I could really, I could like, I could appreciate, as you were saying, the the Spielbergian feel of it. The uh, a lot of the character development was really well done. A lot of the, um, I would say the the character quirks of each individual person you're supposed to care about. Um, they really stood out. Uh, I would also say that like it was a, it's a fairly i wouldn't say it's a long movie but it's a longer movie it runs about uh two hours and 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and um i think you know to cover the extent of this guy's three years of escapades um you need kind of a longer movie i mean it was a little indulgent in some places i would say like there's a, a little fat that i think could be shaved off but i think overall like the way that they play in this character realm and allow um, Leonardo DiCaprio to essentially grow over the course of the movie. And uh, I agree, like Christopher Walken was amazing. He He's known for doing all these like really big, crazy, angry characters. And he really, uh, I think, found a way to keep this character really grounded and also like pull you in to who that character is. Like he, he, uh, finds a way to make you identify with how broken down this character is and why it would influence a character like Frank Abagnale. Right. Yeah. So um, I think that's the most that I can say without really getting into too heavy of spoilers. Um, so I think this is a good time to start lowering that that spoiler wall it's 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 we're hand cranking it we we brought back the hand crank ever since david child came and was like "Ooh, baby your your thing's too automatic let's go retro so we we were like you got it dave so we're slowly cranking cranking it cranking nope we're slowly turning the crank um (laughs) this is how um, we get you canceled (laughs) um so this is your opportunity if you have never seen Catch Me If You Can um, and you really want to dive in as free from knowledge as you can beyond the like general premise which was shared in the pitch and the like who's casted and what, um, then this is your chance to kind of click away. You can find the movie. It's on Tubi TV. It is on HBO Max. It's on all the... Uh, general streaming platforms for rent, so like YouTube, Amazon, uh, Google Play Store. Uh, so you can find Catch Me If You Can. It's not elusive in any way, shape, or form. It's crazy, the irony. So, uh, <laughs> um, and while you're here, if you would like, uh, you can go to Apple iTunes. I guess it's not iTunes anymore, just Apple Podcasts. And leave us a rating or review. Uh, that really helps us get to the top of the charts. It helps other people find us. Because as you know, the most potent form of advertisement is word of mouth. So use your words that would usually come from your mouth, but filter them through your fingers into types and five stars. Just for us, baby. Show, show us some love. Um, so yeah. All right. Well. I think I have wasted enough of time to allow you to reach out and touch your button if you don't want to be spoiled. So we will be back right after this break. And we are back. Lex, Michael, you know what time it is. 
baby, 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 please, you know what time it is. It's time to bust a recap. So we didn't discuss it beforehand. Whom would be uh, breaking it down? If you would like to tag team, we can do that or I can do it myself, baby. All right. How about you start? And then when you feel like you can't carry this burden anymore, uh, you tag me in. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. So I'm going to tell this in chronological order. The movie jumps between the future and the past, um, their future and their past, because it's all our past. Um, But I'm going to start way back in 1963. Hey, guys, we're taking it all the way back to 1963. New Rochelle, New York. We got a young man named Frank Abagnale Jr. His daddy is in some financial trouble and his mom is a real infidelitous. So they get a uh, divorce and instead of, well, I guess also while they're getting divorced, they're like, hey, we're not going to take responsibility and decide who's better for you to stay with. So we're going to make you choose effectively uh, increasing the trauma of this divorce. And he's like, I choose not to choose. And he runs away and he's like, the only way I'm going to survive on these mean streets is with my good luck and charm. And so he uh, decides that he's going to pose as a pilot and then uh starts doing all these dumb check things i think uh, that's where that's where it is lex lex correct me correct me lead me lead lead me back (laughs) uh he poses as a pilot and begins committing check fraud uh so that he can rake in a whole bunch of money while flying around the country and and leading this very sort of uh uh, exciting glamorous slick jet setty lifestyle and uh He's bouncing around the country doing this. And even though uh, people become aware, like the press becomes aware, law enforcement becomes aware that somebody is doing this, is flying around the country, uh, cashing bad uh, Pan Am checks, they still can't catch him. But he's so efficient that he attracts the attention of the FBI, including uh, Agent Carl Hanratty. That's the Tom Hanks character. And they begin tracking him. And at one point, Hanready actually finds Frank, but Frank is able to bluff his way out of that situation. And so we we begin this sort of globe-trotting cat and mouse uh, chase between the two of them as Frank slips from occupation to occupation, identity to identity, uh, and and Hanratty has to try and keep up with him and is actually doing a pretty good job. If, if Frank was a hair less clever, I think Hanratty would probably be less successful, but Frank moves on from his uh, his his Pan Am con, uh, and he uh, what does he what does he do next, Tari J? I believe, if I if I recall correctly, he decides to impersonate a doctor. Oh yeah, he's like, ooh, I think uh, doctors make a money because this really cute nurse uh, is like, I'm a young nurse and I'm sad, and doctors <laughs> yell at me, and he's like, yo, I'm a doctor. I'm not going to yell at you. So uh, how do I get a job at this B? And she's like, oh, uh, all you got to do is pretend. Or, or I guess she doesn't know he's pretending. So she's like, oh, talk to the head physician. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I went to Harvard. No one's going to check that. Uh, and they don't. <laughs> and they let him 
be uh, in charge of a night shift of interns, and he treats them like they are in a classroom, uh, as referenced, uh, a reference back to when he, his, he first did his first bit, where he was pretending to be uh, a teacher in the French class. You see, it's, it gets circles, you know what I'm saying? It builds upon itself. Uh, and then he's like, hey, nurse girl, um, let's make it, let's, let's make, uh, sex. And she's like, oh, I've done a sex and I, uh, did an abortion and it's the sixties. So like my parents were mad. And so he's like, yo, 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 I'm going to make your parents less mad by being like, yo, we're going to get married. And she's like, fuck yeah. And then, uh, to impress her dad, he's like, I, uh, uh, did law. Yep. I, I did a law and and so her her dad believes him um and so then he's allowed to do a law which is bonkers <laughs> but yeah so like i feel like the fbi starts to catch up with him right lex <laughs> uh yes so so uh, no sooner uh do they solidify their plans of uh, frank and his betrothed uh, the nurse uh, brenda 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 yeah Brenda Strong. Brenda. That sounds right. Uh, no sooner have they solidified their plans uh, to be wed. Uh, no sooner has her father thrown them uh, this lavish party than uh, Agent Hanratty catches up with uh, our our intrepid criminal. And he has to flee again, but tries. You know, you get a sense. I get a sense that even though he, he clearly has no qualms about uh, lying and gaslighting and and persistently pulling the wool over the eyes of everyone around him, no matter how much they care about him. Uh, you do get a sense on some level that he cares about Brenda a little bit. And so uh, tries to set up a rendezvous for the two of them um, so that they can essentially, they can, they can flee together and live uh, in peace outside of the, the, the reach of the law. Now it's important as a sidebar to add that throughout the course of this story, as Frank has been, uh, conning people left and right as Frank has been building essentially uh, a small stockpile of wealth for himself. He keeps trying to uh, essentially push his father towards uh, getting the marriage back together. Like his whole, his whole thing deep down in his heart, like, yes, he, he wants to do crimes, but if there's one thing he wants more than to do crimes, it's to see his family reunited. And it, it never quite happens. Frank ends up, fleeing the country, bailing on his bride-to-be, and I feel real bad for this girl, because she's going to have so, 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 so much she's going to have to work through for many, many years. Uh, <laughs> but he, he flees to Europe, and uh, basically bounces around Europe, forging checks like he does, and they're able to track him to a uh, basically like a printing press in France, in uh, Montrachard, France, uh, which is the hometown of Frank's mother um and finally uh carl hanratty is able to sufficiently uh scam the scammer he's able to bluff uh frank into giving himself up and uh, frank is taken into custody and hanratty arranges to extradite him uh back to the united states which is we've now kind of come full circle uh, on our framing device uh, the two points in time where we're jumping back and forth. We have uh, now our long-haired Frank uh, sitting on a plane with Hanratty. And then, of course, Hanratty delivers him some pretty 
devastating news. Uh, uh, Tari, I, I seem to have misplaced my notes here. Uh, do you recall what the uh, what that uh, news that news was? Ah, uh, yes. He uh, borrowed a phrase from one of our good friends, Chris James, and started. He pulled out a guitar and was like, <laughs> "Dad is dead. Dad is dead." Um, and this <laughs> led uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. To uh, escape through the toilet of a uh, of the airplane out of the landing gear, uh, and he does it, but like he doesn't make it very far, man. He he gets caught almost immediately, if I remember correctly, um, and then he serves some jail time. He um, then I want to say four years later gets approached by Carl and he's like, yo, uh, I'm doing some stuff. You want to check out this, this, uh, this check in this case I'm working on. And Frank's like, yeah, look, look at all these obvious faults. I'm a, I'm a forger. So I know why these things are fake. And so then, uh, Carl's like, yo boss, this guy's going to help us do a bit. And so then they bring him onto the team and he thinks about leaving for a second, but comes back and cements his friendship with Carl. And it's the Carl and Frank show uh, for the end till the end of time. They just hang out and uh, catch people who are just like Frank they 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 ruin their schemes and they high five at the end of the day and probably make out. I dig it. Yeah. Um, so like that's what happens in the movie, um, which I think leads me to uh, our next segment, which is what's the difference? Oh. <laughs> I like, I like that one because it sounded like you were in pain at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how it works. Um, you know, because that's that. Aren't we all in pain in the end? Um, so uh, now we're kind of kind of talk about the difference between what took place in the movie and uh, what the real story of Frank Abagnale is. I think. The first one uh, that I would point out is that Carl uh, Hanratty was not the name of the FBI agent. It was uh, Joseph Shea, who is now passed, and 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 they are able to release his name. And he he didn't want it to be in the movie because he was still part of the FBI at the time. Um, so that's the first one. Yeah, um, I think the character name, if I recall correctly, was something that uh, Hanks picked, and it might be a baseball player yeah i believe it was a baseball player sounds right yeah it sounds in line with their baseball metaphor that goes along throughout the whole movie um i would say the the second biggest change between the uh movie story and the real life story is the inclusion of uh frank abagnale senior played by christopher walken um in the real story uh, that character, his father, is never seen again. You, you never, he never talks to uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. after he runs away. But Steven Spielberg felt like to keep the theme going that, uh, that essentially Frank was always trying to impress his, his parents and was trying to get them back together... He wanted to have that fantasy realized. And it was uh, 
confirmed by Frank himself that that was partially a, a motivation of his. If I remember the the quote correctly, it was something to the effect of after a, a brilliant day of conning, um, you know, beautiful women, you know, making a lot of money, he would go back to his hotel room alone and sometimes he would just sit and cry thinking about what his parents are up to and, and hoping that they would be together. Um, so like, it's that idea, but personified. And like, I think that there's a way in the movie itself that you could effectively, um, read it to where that character doesn't, isn't actually there. Um, I feel like, Oh, like his, like his dad is imaginary. Yes. (laughs) That's an interesting, you know what? I, I now want to rewatch this movie immediately with that in mind, because you know, past a point, I'm, do we ever really see the Christopher Walken character talking to anybody except Frank directly? Like he's sort of they're in the restaurant at one point and he sort of like uh uh you know speaks loudly but not to anybody specifically. Right. Um no, he orders the champagne toast, but Frank could do that himself. Right. Interesting. Um, All right, I dig it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that, that change really helps with the theming. I think that like if it was just that he, because it really helps frame the motivation of the Frank character in that you, you see him coming back. And I think you had mentioned it in our recap that he's essentially trying to parent trap his, his parents into getting back together. He's like, look, dad, you, you, uh, you guys broke up because you have money problems. I will fix your money problems. You and mom can go and do a sex again. And uh, and his dad is too proud to accept the money. Um, and so uh, he feels like that's the only thing that is stopping them from being together because he's still a child and doesn't understand that there are probably other aspects, maybe the infidelity, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, because one of the men that his mom cheats with uh, ends up... It, it, you know, ends up being her wife uh, or ends up being her husband. Um, so uh, you have to kind of put that into perspective as well. Um, and those are like, you know, there are smaller other little details that they left out where effectively like you, in real life, um, Frank managed to get away from them uh and he went to Montreal after the the plane uh, incident when he got back into America, but they caught him again, um, and he was in jail for the, for a while at that point. Like, and he also escaped jail and went to Brazil, but like none of that really helps the story. It doesn't matter because um, it it's cleaner if they catch him. He's he he does his time, and you're like, all right, he's he's been redeemed because he did some jail and then can like move on with his life as opposed to like he kept trying to escape like he kept running away from the authorities until they just wore him down you know right um so like i feel like those are a lot of the bigger uh differences um are there any that you can think of um those are the big ones i if i recall correctly I seem to remember reading somewhere that when he was 
15, his first mark was actually his dad. And he ended up costing his dad uh, a little bit of money, which ended up causing some money problems. I don't know if they caused the money problems depicted in the story, but I thought that was interesting as well. And it, it really, the biggest changes to the narrative um, really do involve the father character, which is is to me one of the most interesting parts about this movie. And I think some of the choices that were made, uh, especially by Spielberg once he came onto the project, um, I think sort of uh, it's the most interesting aspect of the movie to me, sort of what it says about uh, the themes and about the characters and about uh, the guy who's making the movie, which, uh, again, when we talk about context like it's it's the most fascinating aspect of this movie to me the the dad stuff and the dad stuff as it pertains to spielberg specifically um so yeah those those would be the biggest ones and certainly the the ones that that sort of grab my attention the most yeah um and so like i think the only other one is that in real life the doctor and the lawyer bit were switched um if that matters to you he was a lawyer before he was a doctor do you care um so, yes, I would love to talk about the theming. And I think that, like, in the way that we do that is within context corner. So uh, let it rip, Lex. Talk about okay. that context. All right. So um, let's see. So it's important, I guess, to note that Spielberg was not going to be the guy to make this movie initially. Uh, DreamWorks, which is his company, acquired the rights to the book in 97, I want to say. And a couple other filmmakers were attached to it. At one point, um, I think Gore Verbinski came very, very, very close to shooting it with DiCaprio, uh, but with James Gandolfini as the Hanrity character and Ed Harris as Frank's father. Uh, which I think would have been very interesting. But uh, after a few different directors uh, took a look at the movie and passed, I think David Fincher passed on it to do Panic Room. Eventually, uh, Spielberg decided to come on and do the movie himself. And as you were saying, uh, the real Frank Abagnale Jr. credits Spielberg for really fleshing out a lot of the father stuff and adding the father stuff back into the story in a real big way. And so the movie as it exists, even though it is very clearly interested in the slick, glossy, fun uh, con man storyline, it is just as interested, if not more so, in the themes of uh, broken families and trying to piece back together a broken family. Now, why is this interesting? Well, Steven Spielberg did a 60 Minutes interview, I think in 2012, around when Lincoln was coming out, that also featured his parents and featured uh, him talking at length about his relationship with his parents. And when you learn the story of their family, it it enables you to see a large chunk of his body of work in a different light. So by that, I mean, when Spielberg was 19, uh, his parents got divorced. His dad was a, a computer engineer And Spielberg has described him as a workaholic, was apparently not around all that much. And he really sort of uh, deified, like uh, exalted his mother. Um, She was almost like a cool older sister to him. And when he was 19, the two of them split up. And uh, at the time, he blamed his dad for that, blamed his dad for essentially for never being around. But what he came to learn was that actually the marriage had ended because his mother had fallen in love with his father's best friend, which coincidentally 
is what happens uh, to the marriage of Frank's parents in this movie. And Spielberg talks about how even after he learned the truth of that, um, he still felt this weird compulsion to blame his dad because of of kind of the relationship that they had had as it had existed up until that point. Uh, but he then talked about how a lot of his work, like E.T. in particular, when he wrote E.T., that was in part him trying to process through his parents' divorce. And in E.T., uh, if I remember correctly, the father character is absent. Um, but that's something that showed up a number of times in his work. I mean, uh, you could argue that the the Roy Neary character in Close Encounters, it has, it's been described as like the ultimate deadbeat dad who at the end of the story uh, basically follows his bliss into space on a, spoilers, on a spaceship, leaving behind his children who will probably never see their father again. Um, uh, I think yeah, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, it was his idea, like he and George Lucas conceived those movies together, but it was his idea to include the Henry Jones senior character, this sort of workaholic absentee father. And uh, he, he and his son now have to try and reconcile. So I guess in the 90s, uh, in the 90s, they finally started to put their relationship back together. Um, and that combined with, you know, Spielberg, uh, I think, having become a father himself, uh, you start to see the role of the father figure in his body of work change. And I had forgotten, um, I'd forgotten the role that the, the father character plays in this movie. But if you juxtapose the context of Spielberg's life with the reality of Frank Abagnale's, and then you take a look at the way Spielberg decided to tweak that reality to tell his story, uh, took a story where the father character, like his own father character, was uh, essentially absent for large swaths of it into a story about a son who wants to put his family back together and so badly wants to make his father happy. Like his father, like Frank's father is, is clearly the character most beloved to him in this entire story. Um, and ultimately, too, that is taken away from him when his father dies. Now, it probably wouldn't have worked out regardless because his mother was happily married to somebody else. But he does, in the end, ultimately find himself with a new surrogate father figure in the form of the Tom Hanks character. And the other thing that I think is sort of interesting is that now that we have reframed the narrative that way, what you really have, you have a, a young guy, like as presented uh, narratively and thematically in this story, you have a young guy who essentially his his home life is so deeply important to him and it completely implodes and he feels like there is nowhere stable for him anymore. There is nowhere he is wanted. His parents won't even fight over him. You know, not that that would be untraumatizing, but uh, nobody is saying like, yes, I really, really, really want you, kid. And so, so much of what he does is about pleasing his dad, yes, but hoping desperately that he can put back together that family unit so he's got a place where he feels like he belongs, that, that he's wanted, um, that, that's, that's safe, that's home for him. And you get the sense the longer he runs these cons on people, the more a factor of it is that he kind of gets off on being pursued. He wants to be wanted by someone, even if that someone is the FBI. Right. Um, and I think it's very telling when we were doing our recap, talked about how when he escapes on the plane, uh, he 
gets arrested fairly quickly. Well, I think what's really sort of uh, pivotally important about that arrest is that he trucks it away from the airport and makes it to his mother's house. And he looks in the window and he sees that his mother has moved on so completely with her new husband, uh, a new young daughter, and his father is gone. He will never have that thing. He won't even have a version of that thing that he has been uh, so desperately seeking uh, for years and years and years. And so he gives himself up because what is the point now? There's nowhere for me to go. And then as it turns out, he finds purpose, he finds a place and he finds a surrogate father figure by essentially flipping and, and sort of working for the quote unquote good guys and stuff. And, and there's that moment late in the movie where there is that question of, is Frank going to completely bail on this? Um, and, and uh, Hanks basically says that he's supremely confident that Frank will be back on Monday in part because nobody's, nobody's chasing you. Like you can go, but like at a certain point now you're just running away from yourself. Nobody's going to chase you, but here's a place that you belong. And so that I trust, I trust that you will come back to it. Um, And so given, given Spielberg's own lived history, um, I think it's very, very uh, it's, it makes the movie a lot more interesting to me. Uh, than I think it would have been otherwise. And watching it last night, that's really far more than, oh, look at the fun crimes and stuff. Um, that's really what what leapt out to me. It's just like, here's a, a filmmaker and an artist who found a real story about a real guy, saw that there, it was simpatico enough, and then used that story to uh, sort of work through, in part, his own issues with his relationship with his parents. Um, I think that's super interesting. Um, no, I agree. And I think it's interesting also because uh, uh, a few weeks ago we talked about 400 Blows, um, a French film that basically has almost the same premise as uh, this movie, except this is like the extreme. Like if Antoine Donnell, um, who was raised in a, in a, a family that had money troubles um, issues at school, um, had a penchant for lying, um, found his mom being infidelitous, uh, and eventually like runs away and has to figure out how to make his life, uh, from that point on, um, they start from, they have the same starting point. They have a lot of the similar themes. It's just, they're explored differently based on, you know, the context of those two people's lives. And they were both created by, uh, by directors who are are almost telling an autobiographical story. Um, right. So I think that that connection is really interesting to to see that like this uh, these two movies that are decades apart share so much in common. Yes. So uh, something I really want to add to this context corner is my perspective on the premise of this story. Like I love the family aspect of it and like the uh, idea of someone running from their past and, and like a, a lot of those layers that are such a, a, a human aspect of living uh, with like damaged relationships and, and how people process those things. Those are really cool. And I think that in a vacuum, this movie is very fun and it's uh, a lot it's very charming. Um, I think outside of the vacuum of like 
oh, look at this, the spectacle of this movie. Um, when it comes to the crimes stuff, it makes me upset. Um, this movie takes place uh, in a world and it's based on true events in a world where the things that Frank Abagnale Jr. does could only be accomplished by a white man. Um, And he's only able to do like, he's only able to get into the door of these facilities and do all these uh, things because people who are white males are always given the benefit of the doubt from the very beginning. So uh, to put this into context, George Floyd, who uh, was recently killed by the police uh, was done so as he was being arrested on suspicion of using a counterfeit $20 bill. Uh, one, I I would challenge you to think about every $20 bill you've ever gotten and if you've inspected if it was real or not, um, because if there is fake currency in circulation, you really wouldn't know. But I assume also that that suspicion was because he was a uh a black man i don't think that anyone would have thought uh about it or a second time if he was not that um and ultimately that led to his death um and so in in that context this idea of this white man um like running around international like running around the united states and internationally being able to like you know, weasel his way into these situations and uh, forge all these checks. And uh, given effectively the benefit of the doubt in all of these different situations, uh, pilfering millions of dollars um, and ultimately that leading to him having a job opportunity that also afforded him the opportunity to now legitimately make millions of dollars working with these companies that he swindled um, uh, is the epitome of privilege. And, and it's the epitome of the fact that people who um, don't look like me are allowed to fuck up as many times as they want. And they are all, there will always be another opportunity for them. And I'm not like saying that like, Oh man, you're white. You 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 have all the opportunity. Why all white people are rich? I'm saying that like, no matter what you do, you are you stand a higher chance of someone giving you a second chance. Whereas a lot of people that look like me don't get a first chance. Right. Um. And so like, I I really like the concept of this movie, and I like its execution, but it, like the intersectionality of it can't doesn't escape me. And so like the whole time I'm watching these scenarios where like he, for example, is in his interview for, uh, you know, the, the, to become a doctor and the guy is looking at his stuff being like, Oh man, cool. Uh, Harvard. Great. You, you must've done a lot of stuff. Like I can only think about how, like if I were in that situation, they'd be like, we have to make some some phone calls and we have to make sure that where's your transcripts? Give give me right. give me all of the things that prove that you were a person. I'm going to call my friend. They worked. They went to Harvard. I don't even know if it was the same year as you. But if they say you didn't go to Harvard, you didn't go to Harvard. Fuck you. Um, 
And that makes me mad. Um, and this isn't me like complaining about like, I mean, I can, I could complain about <laughs> um, privilege and, and the, the inequality of the world I live in. But like, this is mostly me putting into context the, the like heralded exploits of this man who took money from, you know, and the, the movie goes out of its way to be like, fuck banks, you know, they're, they're shitty institutions and they can kiss our ass. They're just a fucking machine of, of garbage. And they, they, they take down the little man. And that's true. Um, but this, this, uh, his exploits as a con man are this thing that people are almost celebrating. They're almost like, yeah, this guy was able to steal millions of dollars. And he mostly did selfish shit with it. Like he just like bought a house. He was trying to buy cars. Like he, he's a, it's not like he was a modern day Robin hood where he's like, cool, I'm doing, I, I stole this money and I'm just going to give it to people. Cause I don't need it. I'm doing it for the thrill. Um, it's right. that like, he was processing his own pain and he found this way to leverage his cleverness. Um, and he had the benefit of uh, looking the way that would allow him to walk through those doors to take full advantage of it. Yeah, I agree that it is tough in 2020 to watch a story like this unfold and not have that thought at numerous points uh, throughout the film. And this is where uh, I think as much as I really enjoy what Spielberg brought to it personally, I do think this is where his uh, uh, tendency towards the sentimental and also his decision to really heavily frame the story within themes of, um, you know, uh, uh, divorce, broken families, and like a kid who just really wants a place to belong and to be loved sort of bumps up against what the actual narrative content of the story is in a way that, yeah, especially now, uh, stands out. You know, whereas, um, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese gets a lot of flack from people um, for supposedly glorifying criminals in his crime movies. And I don't think that really carries water because those guys, uh, you know, they, they fly real high, but ultimately there's always some kind of comeuppance, whether they die or they go to jail. Uh, there is no such comeuppance for Frank Abagnale. In fact, uh, the opposite, he's ultimately rewarded. And because, um, because Spielberg does hew towards the sentimental and because he does really, really does paint Frank as like this, this sad kid who just wants to be loved. Um, you don't get a depiction like, say, another DiCaprio uh, criminal character uh, in Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, he plays Jordan Belfort, even though, yeah, Jordan Belfort basically got off the hook at the end as well. Those characters throughout the running time of the movie are depicted as so monstrous that it it leaves little room for doubt that the point is that this is very bad that these guys are able to continue to do things like this. Um, and actually, I think maybe even more appropriate uh, as a point of comparison uh, would be the TV series Mad Men set in the same era. And you have enough time over the course of uh, what six, seven seasons um, to really explore that time and place and to really make explicit that the the systems and the environments that enable these men to behave this way 
are bad. And I feel like you don't get to delve into that in this movie because that's just not where Spielberg's focus is. Um, and that it does track with Spielberg as an artist, but yes, it is tough um, in 2020 to look at the juxtaposition of narrative content in the movie and sort of tonal and thematic framing and not, you know, kind of cock your head to the side a little bit. Right. Um, I mean, uh, we, uh, it's, it's all, like, you know, I don't want to end on a bummer, but it's also kind of problematic that all these people thought that Frank was older when he's like, I'm 16 and I'm banging adults. <laughs> and adults are like, oh, shit. Oh, jail. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's hard, to, like, especially in the 90s when we were like flying high and we were like, oh, boy, nothing can go wrong. Um, and then like into the early 2000s uh, where we were like, Woo! life is so good we're the richest nation in the world um it's it was easy for us to be like uh, intersectionality doesn't exist yet no one cares about that stuff if you can't if you can't take a joke or you don't see yourself on screen that's your fault um and like i get that uh it's not like it's it's a i mean it's a long-term conversation like it's just now that people are hearing the the other side of it um and so like it's more present and, and it's more on people's minds um so like yeah i can't fault the movie itself nor can i fault uh you know spielberg for trying to make a product that people can relate to on a uh, emotional level uh, with the backdrop of crime um right like and because even the, the way that he frames it there he never really makes it feel like frank is doing like crimes uh it's all kind of in jest like even when no, they're, yeah they're definitely they're capers it feels like exactly the type of activity that gets labeled a caper which is sort of like yeah i'm getting one over on you but at the end of the day we'll if you caught me we would just sort of like bump elbows and wink and chuckle at each other and stuff right um which like i think which is sort of your point <laughs> yeah and that's but like that's that's the big issue with like white collar crime also like last week we talked about um you know the war on drugs and and how that is so harshly cracked down on in, disproportionately and on the other side of that is this where it's like white collar crime which is rarely punished in any uh any way that is proportionate like when we had the big financial crash like none of them niggas are in prison none of the, no they're all just like oh man i feel bad they don't feel bad i like nothing happened to the people who caused so much financial ruin to our nation as a whole that affected people on every level from the, the middle class to the lower class um and and yet like people can go to jail for years of their life for something as small as like a baggie of weed um so this this like disproportionate um use of law um is is just another illustration of the broken system that we have uh created in this world i did not mean for this to become so sad <laughs> and um 
uh, messed up. I liked the movie. I liked everyone's performances. I liked the story it was trying to tell. Um, I think that it uh, works in a vacuum. I think outside of the vacuum, um, there's it doesn't hold up as well. You know, this was made almost 20 years ago, so I can definitely give it that. And that, like, you know, it wasn't thinking about the things that we're thinking about. Um, you know, but if this made you sad, uh, really think about the, the, the institutions that we have and how uh, privilege works within it because white collar crime is typically done by white people and they don't get prosecuted for it or they face the minimalist of, uh, of consequences, mostly because of the wealth, wealth gap, because they've created, they, they, they can buy their way out of uh, the judicial system. Oh boy. Think about how you can change the, the judicial system. Think about what you can do. Ooh, but also, Enjoy Catch Me If You Can. We already uh, listed where you can find it. Go check it out. It holds it. It holds up thematically, just not uh, content-wise. <laughs> uh, we, we what's something whimsical we can end on? Uh, he uh he he uh he escapes through a toilet. There we go. That's that's whimsical. He escapes through a toilet that one time. Ah <laughs> oh, yeah. Um. Uh. So something. I guess something whimsical. Uh, also is that uh, there's a moment when uh, Brenda Strong played by Amy Adams uh, is like sloppy kissing uh, uh, Frank Abagnale's Leonardo DiCaprio um, and essentially it's like gross and, and, and wet and I guess the, the direction that was given for her to do that was that um, uh, Steven Spielberg was like alright you're starving and you are going to eat him like a hamburger that like the first hamburger you've had in months. Um, so go. <laughs> I think, but like that, I think is so such specific directing that I, I, I find um, kind of a little bit of joy in it. Um, uh, you know, actually, I guess one more uh, final thought that I have uh, something else that, that really did speak to me about, this movie is uh, once once Frank is out on his own, he doesn't have anything in the way of uh, real guidance, parental or otherwise. And so uh, as far as how to present to other people, he relies on media and absorbing and sort of mirroring what he sees in uh, film and television. Um, or in, in comic books, like I found it absolutely delightful that he uses Barry Allen as an alias or uh, uh, Ian Fleming as an alias. I thought yes. it was super fun. Um, yes. Uh, but but also be like that. I, I, I don't want to speak for you, uh, but I, I certainly can relate to being a young person who didn't really have a whole lot in the way of guidance and became reliant on media to sort of uh, instruct me as far as how to uh, present to other people, which on the one hand, explains everything about me that functions socially. And on the other, explains everything about me that doesn't function socially. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I relate to that as well. Um, uh, I That is also where I learned all of my social skills and my my uh, schema for human interaction for better or for worse. Am I right? Lex Michael. Anyways, Lex Michael, yep. if someone wanted to talk to you about 
Catch me if you can. Divorce or crimes. Uh, where might they find you? Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael, and I also do another podcast with my partner Marianne Ramish. We call it Friends with Benefits. Uh, now we 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 are. Sometimes we are taking a look at the massive pop culture juggernaut that is the television show Friends. Uh, Marianne is a big fan of the show, and I am to date not. And we are going through the entire series episode by episode. We're talking about it from a fan perspective and a critical perspective. We're actually we're having a pretty good time doing that. Uh, We're into season two now. Friends is, of course, streaming currently on HBO Max. You can jump in there, watch along with us. Uh, We hope to see you there. You can find that podcast, Friends with Benefits, wherever you find your podcast. Uh, You found this one. So uh, uh, check there. Uh, Tari J, where can people find you? Oh my gosh, you can find me at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. Wouldn't you follow me on Twitter? Oh man. Um, but most importantly, you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. And that's where we post our monthly themes. We post our monthly uh schedule all the things that keep you updated on everything that is missing out um as we have talked about this monthly theme is july and it it really sounded like it hurt uh yeah that's how that's how it go That's, that's how it go um and so we will be uh continuing this month's theme Next week with the film JFK, you can catch it on all the streaming platforms and come back next week and we will talk about it. We're going to talk about the the conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about JFK the man. We're going to talk about filmmaking. Oh boy. I'm a cowboy now. Anyways, uh, so make sure to tune in next week. Uh, Until then, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. I'm escaping through the toilet. Uh, Hey, hey, get back here. I I gotta put the cuffs on you. Oh, boy. Whose keys are these that I found down here? Those are mine. Bring them back to me, and I will not arrest you again. Bring me my key. Toilet car. Oh, no. Okay, well, I guess I don't have a place to make a defecation.